Greetings all, we are back with another Hear Her Sports Fast Track. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. Our guest this week, Jessica Berman, has so much good stuff to say about being a businesswoman in sports, finding creative time while running, building a strong group of people around her, putting doubt back in the box, and what it's been like during her first several months as the Deputy Commissioner of the National Lacrosse League. Before I fully introduce and welcome Jessica, a quick reminder to subscribe to the podcast and even more importantly, tell your friends about the adventurous women you get to know here. Every week, there's motivation to be adventurous yourself, so I'd be super thrilled if you pass that along to your pals and training partners. You can find us at hearhersports.com and on social at hearhersports. Now onto the show. Today, I'm here with Jessica Berman, who as of September 9th is the new Deputy Commissioner and Executive Vice President of Business Affairs at the National Cross League. She is the first woman to hold the title of Deputy Commissioner at any professional sports league in North America, and she is now the highest ranking woman in men's professional sports leagues. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. You are very welcome. And I'm just going to start out. How's it been going? It's been a whirlwind, and it's been really exhilarating and fun. I've enjoyed all of the things I thought I would enjoy about the role and then some. So I've been really happy with the experience. So what are you learning? I've been learning a couple of things, I would say, just as an initial matter. The first is for me personally in my professional development, really a different way of working with my role being as broad in scope as it is. I've really had to create some discipline around avoiding the temptation of diving into the weeds. And, and I'm both a strategy person and a detail person. So that's, that's taken some training and, and kind of in, intentionality on my part. Right. So that's really the first thing is just really learning how to prioritize my time and how to stay sort of high level in the way that I'm thinking about my day, my week, my month, my priorities. And it's amazing how quickly the days pass. So, you know, that's, that's been a really huge learning curve for me. And um, in the short time I've been doing it, I've really enjoyed having a broader purview into a bunch of different areas that I didn't previously have experience working in. So that's been super fun. Also, just the nature of the league being an emerging property. I think the league's interest in innovation and risk tolerance, frankly, is, is very different from where I came. And so they're really aggressive in their growth strategy and very focused on the specific areas that Nick, the commissioner, believes will get the greatest lift and the most efficiency in terms of results in the short and long term. So that's been really fun to be part of. It's just a very fast moving, nimble culture, in part because the league office is just so much smaller in terms of the number of people who are there. So it's just a lot easier to get things done. And that's a really new experience for me, having come from one of the four big leagues where we have close to 500 employees. And so that is a much more built out infrastructure. And I think there are pros and cons in in both environments. And so I'm enjoying the opportunity to experience a new way of working. This seems like it was a really big jump for you to make this transition from the NHL where you were for 13 years coming to the NLL. From the inside, from your perspective, was it as big a jump as it seemed from the outside? It was probably even bigger 
of a jump in my mind than it was in other people's perception. It, it was really hard for me to leave the NHL for so many reasons, not the least of which was since I was a teenager, working at the NHL was my dream job. So I love the sport of hockey. I'm very passionate about it. I love the people with whom I work and worked for. My kids are playing travel hockey and are obsessed with the sport. I like to say that my identity became intertwined with the NHL in a lot of ways. So leaving was was really challenging for me. And I had to really sort of push myself to think differently about my value proposition and my potential and my career and what was the best way for me to reach that potential. So yes, I, I think it's fair to say that it was a really big deal for me to leave there and to take this opportunity. I guess one of the questions I would have is, you know, how did you take such a big leap? You know, did you have a process to figure that out? I did have a process. Actually, I, I consulted with family member who actually just released a book. Uh, her name is Eve Rodsky and she's on the New York Times bestseller. And I, I always knew she had great advice and, and thought process for people. But I guess the fact that the world is recognizing that in her success of her book is, is good validation. And I got advice from someone who's really savvy and smart. I consulted with her and some other people, but her advice really, when I think back on kind of what really got me to this point, um, it was really her feedback to me, which was to approach this potential job transition like you would any other challenge or business challenge in your life. And she encouraged me to buy a moleskin notebook and to map out a strategy, both in terms of key contacts and people in my network who I thought could help me think about my future and my potential in a different way and really open doors for me to potential opportunities, knowing that any role I take would have to be a significant step forward in my career. And as you probably know, as you get more senior, particularly in the sports industry, which is a pretty small industry, it becomes harder and harder to find opportunities. So it's not easy to climb the ladder. I think it becomes more narrow as you move up the chain. And so um, oh, that's really... Yeah, well, there are just fewer opportunities, particularly if you're tied geographically, sure. which I am. There are just fewer and fewer opportunities present themselves, and which makes sense, right? Because companies are built like pyramids. Right. And, and so there's just fewer places to go that are logical in terms of them being a step forward. So that process that I went through with my moleskin was really kept me disciplined, and uh, allowed me to sort of reflect back to make sure I was making the progress that I intended to make or if I was deviating from my plan to really think intentionally about whether that was the right approach to really advancing the process. And I think what I always knew was that it was possible that I would go through that process and still stay at the NHL. Like it may have been that that intentional strategy may have caused me to conclude that I was in the right place to reach my potential, or there wasn't a better opportunity for me to pursue, but at least I would do it knowingly and in an informed way. And so that was really the process I followed. And there were lots of people along the way who, who really challenged me to think differently, who played devil's advocate at different points where I was considering various different opportunities. So 
just like with family, I, I feel like in professional development, it takes a village. And I, I feel really fortunate that there were so many people who really helped me along that journey. Yeah, it seems like you've developed a great network of people to help you. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. My mom calls me a people collector. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's actually said that since I was in high school. Wow. And I, I do. I sort of like store people <laughs> along the way who I feel like make me better and enhance my experience in life and who I feel like I could contribute to, but also receive from. And as I've gotten older, that, that collection grows and grows <laughs> and it becomes more and more challenging to keep up with all those people. But it, it's always been a very high priority for me and always given me back more than I feel like it takes in terms of effort to cultivate. Nice. Have you run into anything unexpected so far in the last couple of months? Um, unexpected. That's a good question. I, I think maybe I prepared myself for more of a harder transition than it ended up being. You know, I think knowing that the focus of your podcast is, is on women, I'll just take this opportunity to say what I feel like sometimes is acknowledged. But as women, I think we have a tendency to have even more so than men, that imposter syndrome, at least I feel like I have that where you yep. sort of have a lot of self doubt and you question whether you're qualified for a particular opportunity. And sometimes you allow that to really impact the steps you take because you feel like you're not going to do well, or you're going to fail, fear of failure. And so I guess to answer your question, the unexpected thing for me has been that I've had a bunch of moments over the last seven weeks where I'm like, oh, wow, I, I could do this. I'm, I'm qualified for this job. <laughs> I'm going to do really well at this job. And it's like every single time it's like a surprise. And they always tend to be in situations where I'm exercising discretion or judgment in an area that is different from what I've done in the past. And I'm like, oh, wow, I've never done this before, but I seem to kind of know what to do. And I think the reason for that is, you know, when you hear, I've read a lot about how women think about their performance as opposed to their potential, as if, if you haven't done it before, it means you can't do it. And, and obviously that's ridiculous. And all of us, I think when we're in situations where we're uncomfortable, it forces us to really dig deep into kind of your just common sense and decision-making skills, which you don't have to have done before in the specific subject matter area to actually do it. And so that's been validating for me. And I don't know if it'll necessarily change the initial reaction of like, oh my God, I've never done this before. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. But those have been nice surprises where I have those kind of validating moments that I feel like I made the right decision and I'm actually contributing and adding value, but also learning. That's so interesting that you mentioned that because one of the quotes that I pulled out to ask you about was something you said a while ago, I think, but I remind myself all the time that I have the skill set to thrive in this role and that I can succeed at anything I put my mind to. I think mm -hmm. about confidence so often, so I was struck by that and by what you just said, but you know, what brought you to this point? And it sounds like that's not a constant because you did say that you had a little bit of imposter syndrome going into this job. Yeah. And I think everybody does. And I think it takes confidence to admit vulnerability, frankly. And so I, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. I think it comes from a place of 
wanting to do well and be successful and being a perfectionist in a lot of ways, which is probably what's made me successful in my life. So right. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that there's that it plays some role in my day to day life professionally. But the challenge is to make sure that it's not controlling you and that you're keeping it in its proper place and recognizing it when it's like taking up more space than it should in terms of how you approach your life. So for me, I think the, what I've always tried to do is reflect on key accomplishments, like big moments in my professional career that I can draw back on when I feel like that insecurity or imposter syndrome is taking up more space than it should and remind myself of those key accomplishments to say, well, you did that and you had never done that before. And so you can do this. And so it just allows you to sort of like quiet that voice of doubt. And, and like I said, sort of keep it in its proper place, put it in the box and put the lid on and push it back in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, as I prepared to talk to you, pretty much everything I read talked about the growth of the National Cross League. So I gathered that this is going to be a really major focus for you as you're going forward. Can you talk more specifically about what that's going to mean, what it's going to mean to grow the league? Sure. I think as an initial matter, the footprint of the league is going to grow under Nick Sakevich, the commissioner and my boss, his leadership over the last three years, he's been really clear both internally and externally that one of our key growth strategies is going to be expansion. And I think that's probably for obvious reasons, but just to say it, sports is a community builder and the connectivity of sports and the growth of sports really comes from grassroots and local fans feeling like this is their team. And so right now we're coming into our 2019-20 season with 13 teams. Last year we had only 11 teams, so we're growing by two this year and into two new markets. And I think what you'll see over the next three to five years is additional growth into new markets throughout North America. Right now we have five teams in Canada and eight in the U.S., and I think you'll continue to see it grow with that sort of proportionality because the roots of our game are Canadian and indigenous. And so we're always going to make sure to be conscious of those roots. So I would say that's kind of number one from a growth strategy perspective. I would say the second component is media, because no matter how large your footprint is in terms of the local teams and having places where people can come watch the game live, we need to be able to scale to reach more people who can fit into arenas that hold between 10 and 18,000 people, depending. So I guess the the second component is going to be around media and media distribution. We currently have a deal with BR Live, which is subscription-based OTT platform that people can download to watch an NL game anywhere at any time, either on a game-by-game -game basis, a monthly basis, or by season. And that's going to be really key to our growth strategy because we know that grassroots lacrosse is growing at an exponential rate and outpacing its peer team sports. And we really want to be able to tap into those families and those kids who we know love the sport of lacrosse. And uh, we have the best players in the sport and we're showcasing their talent. And so if you're a kid who's playing lacrosse and you want to see the best 
talent that exists in the game. We want you to be able to find our sport through your phone anywhere at any time. So I think you'll start to see that as kind of a second component of our growth strategy. And then I would say the third component is really tied to commercial partnerships and what you've already seen under Nick's leadership is non-endemic, non-lacrosse brands begin to join the NLL from a sponsorship perspective. So last season we had Geico and Anheuser-Busch working with us on marketing partnerships. And that is really important, particularly for an emerging property like the NLL, because it allows us to begin to transcend beyond a niche core avid fan base, which we already have, to begin to bring in casual fans or more avid fans, whether or not they've played the game of lacrosse. So that will just help us to increase our reach and bring more people under the hood to be able to sample and ultimately become fans of the game. You know, it was really interesting to do some reading about the NLL because I didn't really know that much about it and to read about all your strategies and hear you talk because it seems like there's so many parallels between what you're doing and what the league is doing and what's going on in a lot of the professional women's sports like soccer and hockey and basketball. Are you watching what's happening over there and are you like looking at what they're doing and taking lessons of some kind? Definitely. Well, I think there there's a lot of similarities with all of the, we could put them under the category of emerging right, sports right. properties, because those types of properties really have the ability to take more risk in terms of introducing technology and other mechanisms, enhancing fan experience and engaging fans at a more personalized and deeper level, because they don't have kind of the tradition and the kind of grounded history that really causes them to move a little bit slower into those spaces um, and be more conservative or traditional in how they approach that integration. So I think you'll see that more with all of the emerging properties. And I also think with the explosion of digital media and marketing and OTT and cord cutters that it presents a huge opportunity for all of those emerging properties to begin to fill gaps in people's lives from an entertainment perspective that probably wouldn't have existed. Those gaps wouldn't have existed 10 years ago. And that's because people are looking to consume content all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know that particularly with Gen Zers because I have kids who are in that generation <laughs> right. and I see how much they're on their phones and they literally if you if you take like when I take the phone away from my 11 year old and he just sits for a second he's like what am I supposed to do what, <laughs> like what do you have planned for me it's like no you're just gonna sit and be for like one minute and we're gonna see what happens like what's gonna happen in your brain if you just sit and be but they're just not conditioned to not be fed curated, personalized, individualized content constantly. It's just a constant stream and that's how their brains are trained. And so, you know, it might cause concern from like a parent perspective. We could talk about that on a different day from, uh, <laughs> from the capacity of my role as deputy commissioner of the NLL and being part of all these emerging properties and even properties like major league soccer and 
it's presented opportunities for just more players to have a role in content creation and distribution. Sure. It was also interesting what you said about how, you know, you see your teams as community builders and that's why expansion is so important, which again, I related to the women's sports because, you know, I'm in Cleveland and there aren't any of the women's professional sports. And so it's hard to choose, you know, which team I would, I would follow. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I really believe, and this actually goes back to why I wanted to work in sports from the time I was a teenager, which is that I believe that there are very few things in our social fabric especially today, but I even thought this when I was 15, that unite communities and reduce barriers between people who come from different backgrounds. And I grew up in a place, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, a place that's probably the melting pot of diversity in the world, particularly the neighborhood where I grew up, which I call it real Brooklyn. I grew up in Flatbush where I was actually the minority in my high school. And I was always mesmerized by the way that all sports, women's sports, men's sports, brought together our community for our high school, that pro level. And it was the reason I wanted to work in sports. I just felt from that point on that I needed to invest my career in helping to cultivate the things that unite communities. I think that's so awesome. Yeah, very cool. Before we finish, I understand that you're a runner. What's your training like? Oh, I run every day, pretty much. I, I call it my uh, my therapy, although it, it's really the place where I do some of my best thinking, believe it or not. I, I've been known to be sending myself emails or texts while I'm running because <laughs> th- there's just very few times in life today, particularly with how we're all so scheduled with meetings and conference calls and emails where you have blank space in your brain. And for me running, and I don't know if it's the cadence of the steps and the rhythm or what it is, but the most creative thinking happens for me when I'm running. And so it's something that is really good for me on a host of levels from a health perspective. But I also have some of my best sort of unintentional subconscious thinking that helps me with work when I'm running. So I'm just like completely addicted to it. I also love that it's the most accessible form of exercise. Like all you really need is a pair of sneakers right? and yeah. you could do it anywhere. It's one of my favorite things to do is when I'm in a new city, just sort of taking my sneakers and exploring a new place. So yeah, I, I, every time I take a run, I feel thankful that I can run. And I'm conscious of the fact that as I get older, that that may not always be true. Yes. <laughs> so I appreciate it every day that I could do it. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do when my knees give out or my hips. I've actually recently started to do yoga, knowing that I need some self-preservation so that I could have this be a sustainable workout activity. So hopefully I have a lot more years left of running. Yes. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Totally. Great. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thanks for listening. It is always great to have you here. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the new Fast Track series. Email elizabeth at hearhersports.com or call the new hotline at 725-BE-BADASS. I've really enjoyed hearing your voices, so thanks to everyone who has called already. We have a terrific lineup for the next couple of months. Stay up to date by subscribing to the newsletter 
at hearhersports.com. Design is by Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.